In the desert of Arizona, just north of Tucson, is the site of an interesting environmental research project. There sits a sealed terrarium the size of two and a half football fields. It covers more than three acres. In fact, the enclosure is more airtight than the International Space System Station. The compound is known as Biosphere 2. The Earth is Biosphere 1. This is Biosphere 2. Inside this glass structure, scientists have simulated five of Earth's ecosystems. The desert, the ocean, the marsh, the savanna, and the rainforest. The dome is so totally self-contained. It even recycles its own air, food, water, and waste. Today, Biosphere 2 is an earth science laboratory. But in the early 1990s, it was an experiment. Eight scientists entered the glass bubble in 1991, emerging in 1993. These eight people spent two years together with no personal contact with other people or with the outside world. For the scientific community, Biosphere 2 has been a novel experiment. But sadly, for many Christians, we've been living in a self-contained, isolated dome for years. Christians, even the born-again type, are notorious for constructing artificial environments where they can seal themselves off from the rest of the world. All our friends are Christians. Our kids go to Christian school and hang out with other Christians. All our activities are at church or with church members. We work and live around non-Christians, but we keep our contact to a minimum. We recycle relationships and socially interact with the same people over and over. Often we have very little time to reach out to those who need us most. Now don't misunderstand. I pastor a church, and I'm all in favor of Christian fellowship. But I'll live forever with you guys. There is a world out there that will spend eternity vacationing on the lake of fire if we don't get them the gospel. In our text this morning, we learn that God has not only reconciled us to himself, but he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. If you've been wondering what your ministry is, look no further. Each of us has been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the glorious task of putting the hands of men into the hand of God, of leading broken, empty, shipwrecked, wandering souls into a meaningful relationship with their Savior. The word translated reconciliation literally means to exchange. It's the Greek word for exchanging coins. We as Christians are called to be exchange agents. Our job is to arrange swaps, royal robes for sinful rags, Forgiveness for fear, fulfillment for frustration, love for loneliness, hope for hollowness, peace for pain. Our job is to get the good news to those whose world is full of bad news. Realize God created human beings for fellowship. 
He wants to have a close relationship with you and me. In the Garden of Eden, the first man and woman enjoyed just that. Adam and Eve knew God. The Bible says God walked with them in the cool of the day. That just creates such a beautiful picture. They just were like best friends, taking a walk with God, enjoying life together. This was the kind of relationship, the wonderful relationship that Adam and Eve experienced with God. Imagine this. Imagine having the God of the universe as your BFF. Your walking and talking partner. Someone you spend time with and share your heart with. Yet this friendship, this fellowship, didn't last forever. Adam and Eve made a choice. They cozied up to that serpent and they rebelled against their creator. They believed the lie that they could know more and be happier and live better without God than they could with God. The heavens and the earth still shudder at their decision. Like a rock thrown into the lake, the splash still reverberates. Ripples keep emanating from that tragic decision. Someone referred to the first sin as the Adam bomb. Adam and Eve bombed, all right. They blew it. Life before they sinned was harmony and paradise. Sadly, the fallout of their rebellion is still wreaking havoc today. Look at our world and the mess we've made. Crumbling marriages, broken homes, violence in our schools and on our streets, racial tensions, the hungry and homeless, conflicts brewing all over the world. And the reason for it all can be traced back to the decision made in the garden. Adam and Eve broke fellowship with God. They struck out on their own. They decided to do life their own way. The Bible calls their independence sin. Like a boat tied to the dock, they cut anchor and they began to drift. The entire Adam's family, Adam and Eve and all their descendants, have been lost at sea ever since. What do you do with rebellious kids? Do you wash your hands of them and let them get what they deserve? Do you turn your back on them and make them figure it out all on their own? Do you let them just flounder for a while until they've learned their lesson? Well, God went on a rescue mission for his rebellious kids. An elaborate rescue mission. With great passion and determination, God made it his goal, his aim, to reconcile His broken relationship with us. He set out to restore us to Himself and to renew our friendship. Here in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul states, All things are of God. In other words, he had a blank slate, an empty canvas. God can do anything. So who will He call? What tool will He use? What means will He employ to save us? How will God repair this breach? How will He remove this wedge? Paul tells us in verse 18, he has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. God reconciles us. He puts us back on friendly terms with him through Jesus Christ. From the beginning, God warned us the wages of sin is death. God told Adam that if he ate of the forbidden fruit, he would surely die. And die he did. Physically, he died later. But spiritually, he died the instant he sinned. 
But God sent Jesus into this world to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus was born of a virgin, bypassing inherited sin, and he lived a perfect life, not once guilty of a merited sin. Jesus was innocent. Notice verse 21. For he, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Having no sin himself, Jesus could make amends for our sin. On the cross, God took every grimy act done in every slimy place, and he thrust it on Jesus' sinless shoulders. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He was made sin who knew no sin so that we could become the rightness of God. At Calvary, Jesus made a grand swap. Jesus took our twistedness. He was twisted on that tree to give us his rightness and his goodness. And when now you give your life to Jesus, inside, God transforms. He gives you a new nature to love him and to obey him. You become a new creation in Christ. He changes you inside, but he also changes you in heaven. For God pardons you there. He blots out your sin. He credits you with his virtue. On the books, you are cleared of all guilt. You see, sin twists and warps, but there is none of that in Jesus. He is righteous in every way. And now he makes us right in him. In him, we get both a right heart and a right standing before the Father. Now notice our text. It doesn't say that God is the one who needs to be reconciled to us. No, it's always vice versa. We're the ones that need to be reconciled to God. Verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. See, God has already buried the hatchet. God isn't angry with us. His fists aren't clenched. His arms are open. His nail-scarred hands Reach out to us. There's no reluctance in God's acceptance. His willingness to forgive us was decided on the cross long before we entered the picture, certainly long before we rebelled against Him. All that had to be done for us to be forgiven was accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ. Some people think God, they assume that God is a condemning God. That he loves to stoke the flames of hell with human kindling. Not so. God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not imputing their trespasses to them. Did you hear that? God doesn't. He no longer imputes to us our sin. That means he's no longer keeping score. God is no longer up there in heaven tallying up your infractions. At the cross, God stopped looking us over for flaws. He isn't scrutinizing us to see if we measure up. Now he's willing to forgive us and accept us simply for his son's sake. The only question then is, will we bow to Jesus? We can do nothing to deserve God's favor, but to receive it, we have to submit our lives to his son. You remember the story Jesus told of the boy who ran away took his dad's inheritance and squandered it, parted it all away. He finally decided to return home and see if he could just sign on as one of his father's hired hands. 
Instead of extracting a payback, his dad ran to him and forgave him and kissed his neck and welcomed him home and even threw a party, a celebration for him. And you know, God's forgiveness of us is just as lavish. All we have to do is come home. Have you come home to Jesus? That's what you need to do. Our tendency is to withhold forgiveness at least long enough to watch the offender squirm. But this isn't how God thinks. He forgives freely. He forgives extravagantly. And this is how we should represent him when we talk of Jesus to others. For according to our text, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. This is what God is doing in the world today. God is reconciling lost sinners to himself, and he wants to use you and me to do so. I've heard it said, if a man has a soul, and he has, and if that soul can be won or lost for eternity, and it can, then the most important thing in the world is to bring that man to Jesus Christ. This is our ministry. When you put verses 19 and 20 together, they read as follows. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But now God is in us pleading and imploring for people to be reconciled. Tori Matthews once worked for the Southern California Humane Society. One day she got a frantic call from a child whose pet iguana had drowned. You see, a dog had frightened the iguana up a tree. The lizard had climbed out on the end of the limb and fallen into the swimming pool. Well, when Officer Matthews arrived, the little boy was beside the pool crying as his pet lizard lay motionless on the bottom of the water. Tori dove into the pool and she emerged with the lifeless body of this iguana. Well, she thought, you resuscitate a person and a dog, why not an iguana? And so she locked lips with the lizard and was able to revive the boy's pet iguana. Afterwards, Tori told a reporter, It was a pretty ugly animal to kiss, but the last thing I wanted to do was to tell this little boy his iguana died. Well, there are people in your world, no doubt, just as ugly, just as nasty, just as scaly, just as repugnant as an iguana. Their lifestyle and their attitude stand for everything that you as a Christian oppose. Extending compassion and love to them would be like locking lips with a lizard. Hey, but if the last thing Tori Matthews wanted to do was tell a little boy his pet died, think of what it would be like to have to tell God that the people he loved, that the folks Jesus died to reconcile, drowned because you were afraid to get close to them. Hey, we have been called by God to kiss some lizards. Lizard kissing is the ministry of reconciliation. Notice verse 20. Paul refers to us as ambassadors for Christ. And with the time I have left, this is where I'd really like to camp this morning. What does it mean to be an ambassador? An ambassador is a spokesperson for his homeland living in a foreign land. An ambassador represents the interests of home in the context of the surrounding culture. 
And you, my friend, are an ambassador. You are God's spokesman. You're a spokesman for Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we're serving in this foreign post. We're representing the will of our king, even among the people around us. Hey, this church is an embassy, and you are divine diplomats. Now realize, two traits make for a good ambassador. First, he represents only the will of his sovereign. When he speaks, it isn't laced with his own personal opinions. He says only what his king would want him to say. And then second, he tries to relate to the people to whom he's been sent. When Paul says God is in the Christian pleading with men, the word pleading literally means to come alongside or to slip into someone else's shoes. See, God does more than just shout to humanity to toe the line. No, he identifies with our struggles. He empathizes with our weaknesses. He takes the time to understand and relate, and we should too. In fact, the reason Jesus left his heavenly perch and joined humanity was to let us know that he cared, that he wanted to taste our plight, that he was willing to walk in our shoes. When Jesus spoke, it was only the words his father had given him to say. But those words were always couched in ways that appealed to hungry hearts, that stirred up an interest in the minds of his listeners. You see, the job of an ambassador is not just to represent heaven. It's more than just uttering cold, matter-of-fact declarations. A good ambassador packages the will of heaven to appeal to men. He or she relates to the culture around them and makes the message clear and attractive An ambassador presents the truth, but in ways that increase its likelihood to be accepted. It always amazes me when the Saudi Arabian ambassador comes on TV. He looks so slick, so polished. Of course, he looks and speaks American. Forget the fez, forget the robes. The guy wears a Brooks Brothers suit. He looks like a Western diplomat, not a nomad off a camel. His image is designed to encourage his listeners to buy into his rhetoric. Hey, a good ambassador is shrewd. He knows his audience, and he deliberately tries to appeal to its tastes and its needs and its logic. And this was Paul's diplomatic strategy. You remember what he told the Corinthians back in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians? He said, to the Jews, I became a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are without law as without law that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Paul built bridges. He looked for ways to identify with the people around him. While with his Jewish friends, he talked the Torah. He ate kosher foods. When he was with his Gentile buddies, he discussed Greek philosophy, probably jawed about the Olympic Games. Paul wasn't being deceitful, he was just being flexible. He knew his audience and he tried to find common ground. Paul was willing to adjust his interests to reach his audience. Too often, we as Christians, we focus on the differences between believers and unbelievers, as if there were no commonalities, as if we just occupied different planets. Oh, it's true, the spiritual state of a person who doesn't know Jesus is different from the Christian as night is different from day. But hey, we have a lot of commonalities. 
We both have a mortgage, a lawn to mow, a car to repair. We both get sick. We have a less than perfect marriage we're working on. We have similarities too. In your interactions, try to focus on the similarities and work to build a relationship that will ultimately yield an opportunity for you to explain the differences. See, Paul was always looking for a shared interest, a commonality around which he could develop a friendship. Paul tried to blend in so that he could speak out. If he could relate to folks culturally, then he could reach them spiritually. Over the 38 years that I've been a Christian, I've noticed that it's usually the biker who wins the biker to Christ. And the business executive who wins the business executive and the electrician who wins the electrician. It doesn't have to occur this way, but often it does. You know, it's odd to me. I meet Christians all the time who are willing to fly to countries overseas to witness for Jesus. But the folks they're more likely to reach are those closest to them. The guy just down the street or the person along the assembly line. People in whom they have so much in common. Realize an ambassador's job most closely parallels the job of an interpreter. Obviously, an interpreter needs to be fluent in both languages, in the language of the speaker and in the language of the listener. And if the interpreter is deficient in either language, then the communication between the parties is going to be muddled. And as a Christian, you are an interpreter. You see, it's your job to interpret heaven's truths into the language of earth. And to do that job effectively, you too must be proficient in both languages. you got to speak the truths of heaven, but in a dialect understood on earth. This is what we try to do every week here at Calvary Chapel. We worship with contemporary music. I teach practically and try to apply God's word to modern ears. You know, it's been said the world has more winnable people than ever before, but it's possible to come out of a right field empty-handed. And that's what happens when the church gets stuck in a rut and caters only to the sanctified. We need to present God's truths in compelling ways that appeal to contemporary tastes. Again, the job of an ambassador is to be fluent in two languages. The language of heaven and the language of earth. And yet this is not always as easy as it might seem. Some Christians know very little of the language of heaven. They've lost touch with God's truth and with God's perspective. Their Bible has been accumulating dust. Their message has become a legalistic gospel or a prosperity gospel or a social gospel or a politicized gospel, or a watered-down feel-good gospel. They don't preach the gospel of reconciliation, of God's amazing grace. And the methods they use are more man-made than spiritual. Pressure rather than love. Hype rather than holiness. They're more into marketing than in ministering. Some Christians have neglected heaven's language. But others have forgotten how to speak the language of earth. They've been in the bubble for too long. They've enjoyed the comfort of hanging out with people who believe the way they do. 
They're so socially isolated, they now have trouble relating to non-Christians. There's an awkwardness. You see, as an ambassador, you've got to stay in touch with home, but you also have to relate to the trends and dialect of the land to which you've been dispatched. Don't barricade yourself in a bubble. Some Christians haven't had a conversation with a lost person about spiritual things in years. In fact, if given the opportunity now, they've forgotten how to relate. Pentecostal preacher Donald G., he once wrote this, It's possible to live such an otherworldly life, to get into an unearthly, abnormal condition where you may be very spiritual, but you are not a scrap of good as an interpreter. You have gotten out of touch with men. Then he gives an example. He says, I was attending a street meeting, listening to a fine young woman give her testimony. She was full of the Holy Spirit, on fire for God, had a real desire to win souls. But she was talking to a bunch of cold miners and drunkards and saying, Dear ones this and dear ones that. They were not dear ones by a long way. And they didn't like being called dear ones. You see, she had lived in the sugary sweet atmosphere of Pentecostal prayer meetings and had lost touch with the world. And this can happen to us. When the church retreats into a spiritual bunker and closes itself off to the rest of the world, we stop coming across authentic to people. We might be sincere, but we seem plastic, even phony. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul calls us a peculiar people. That word peculiar is an old King James word, which means different or special. And we are to be different but in an attractive way, in the love we show each other, and in our outlook on life, and in our business practices, and in our values, and in the joy that radiates from our lives. We're not to be peculiar in the sense of being weird, or oddballs, or eccentric. And yet some Christians use Titus 2 verse 14 to justify being a cultural geek. Church folks hold on to traditions that alienate them from the mainstream. They think they're being holy and separate from the world. In reality, they're being just plain weird. I grew up in the 1960s and went to a church that frowned on guys with long hair and bell-bottom jeans. A buzz cut and a white shirt was more spiritual. But says who? The Bible doesn't have a Christian's dress code. It was just a man-made tradition, and it prohibited our church from reaching kids who needed the gospel. And today, I wonder what traditions we stubbornly hold on to. What personal biases are we allowing to hinder us from reaching this current generation? Jesus told us to be in the world, but not of it. We are in this world. That means that we are to fit in culturally and dress fashionably and speak normally. But we're not of the world, which means we need to have godly priorities. We need to stand up morally and spiritually. Of course, where the culture violates our convictions, we need to take our stand for God. But we should be fluent in both languages of heaven and of earth. Years ago, I ran across a story that illustrates what happens 
when believers in Jesus isolate themselves in their little bubble, their Christian compound, and become ingrown. They even develop their own vocabulary that no one else understands. It's sort of a form of Christianese. Listen to this funny article. It's called, They Speak in Other Tongues. It's too long for the screen, so you're just going to have to listen to me, okay? Have you ever been saved? A rather wide-eyed young fellow startled me with his question as we waited for the bus. He handed me a booklet with a picture of hell on the front. Sure, I replied. Once when I was nine years old, I was swimming at Jones Beach, and a strong undertow began to drag me out to sea. My uncle heard my cry for help, and no, 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 he interrupted. Redeemed. Have you ever been redeemed? You know, reborn, washed in the blood. I responded, what in the world are you talking about? Convicted. Have you ever been convicted? I beg your pardon. I've never been in trouble with the law. He looked me square in the eye. I think you need to be delivered. Delivered? I'm just here waiting on the bus. I think I'll stick with that. Thank you. He looked at me as if we were speaking another language. Hey, can we have lunch sometime, he asked. Oh, that would be fine. He looked harmless enough, but he was an unusual fellow and quite difficult to understand. That Wednesday, I had lunch with Ed. He was a little late, but explained that he was having some quiet time. Quiet time, I asked. What do you mean? Well, each day just before lunch, I have some time in my prayer closet, he responded. I was puzzled. Do you pray in a closet? No, it's in my car. A closet in your car? He changed the subject. Like the first day I met him, again, he, le- he left me confused. This Ed is quite a unique fellow, I thought. As we parted that day, Ed gave me a little booklet that explained how someone could come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I read it and understood it and knew that was exactly what I needed. That night, I submitted my life to Jesus and I was born again as it's stated in the booklet. Two days later, I told Ed, he was overjoyed. The following week, we got together again, and Ed strongly urged me to find a good body. I was surprised at his suggestion, but it sounded good to me. I took his advice and proceeded to comb the local health clubs for an attractive woman. When I met Denise, I knew she was the one. We began to date, and soon she became a believer too. Ed rejoiced and told us that it was crucial that we get planted so that we could grow together. Sometimes it's hard to understand this guy, I confided in Denise. I told Ed I wasn't quite sure what he meant by planted. He responded, committed. You know, you need to be committed now that you know Jesus. Now, wait a minute, I protested. Just because I don't understand what planted means doesn't mean that I'm nuts. Anyway, I think trusting Jesus is the most sane thing I've ever done. It was obvious that Ed's patience was growing thin. He explained, Bob and Denise, you have to get plugged in. Don't you understand? No, he didn't. But I did wonder if getting plugged in had any connection with going out under the power, something I'd heard Ed mention and hope would never happen to me. I had to miss worship the next Sunday, but Ed and I had breakfast Monday morning, and he filled me in on what happened. God moved, he said with excitement. God really moved yesterday. 
Where is he now? I pleaded. I was just getting to know him. Now he's gone? No, no, Bob. God hasn't gone anywhere. I was relieved. It's just that so many people were stepping out and moving into gifts. You mean people were leaving during the meetings? And what's this about presence? No, it's the gifts. The gifts were really flowing, he said. That's beautiful. People were giving gifts to each other. I wish I'd been there. Now Ed seemed confused. Anyway, he said, changing the subject, Denise was there, and boy, was she on fire. Fire? Denise got burned? What happened? Is she okay? No, Bob, you don't understand. That sure is an understatement, I thought. Denise is just fine. It's just that I believe she is really called and that God wants to use her. Things were not getting any clearer. Did Denise mention that she was getting too many phone calls? And what's this about God taking advantage of her? Ed sighed. Can I walk in the light with you? Where do you want to go, I answered. Of course you can walk in the light. It's daytime, Ed. He just shook his head. I don't know what it is, but Ed and I have a tough time communicating. Well, it's been over two years since I was saved and delivered. Now I'm plugged in, planted, and committed to a good body. God has been moving, and I've been stepping out in the gifts. I can hardly believe how God's using me. I've developed one new problem, though. It seems all my old friends just don't understand me anymore. When I share about my redemption, that I've been washed as white as snow, and that I desire to follow the Lamb, they seem to tune me right out. I guess they're just convicted when they see that I'm on fire. Hey, in a multitude of ways, we as Christians can alienate ourselves from non-Christians unnecessarily. Whenever we speak to unbelievers, try to avoid using religious cliches and buzzwords. Try to speak in language they'll understand, in ways that they can relate. But you know, it's not just our lingo that alienates unbelievers. Sometimes we engage in practices that are really only understood in-house. When we act on them out in front of non-Christians, people can draw the wrong conclusions. I'll never forget this pastor friend I had. He wanted to meet on a monthly basis with me, and sort of the middle distance between where he lived and where I lived was downtown Atlanta. And so we were meeting on a monthly basis in downtown Atlanta to eat and to talk. But whenever I would walk into the restaurant, this guy would be sitting there waiting on me, and he would come up, and he would give me this big bear hug. Now, don't misunderstand. We've been through this before. I'm all in favor of members of the body of Christ hugging each other. I think it's a great thing. In church, where a hug is properly understood, it is a meaningful form of communication. But trust me, in midtown Atlanta, (laughs) at a crowded restaurant where people are watching you, if two men are hugging each other, those who see it aren't there thinking, oh my, look at that sweet Christian fellowship. That is not what they're thinking. It is okay to hug in church. Christians appreciate the gesture. But even at church, please be careful who you hug. I mean, there was a time in my life (laughs) when I was trying to be so macho that if you'd hugged me, you'd have turned me off. 
You go hugging some of those high school guys, man, and they're going to freak out. My point is, just be natural around people. Just respect the social mores that govern normal behavior. When we do stuff that people interpret as weird, it drives them away from the gospel that they desperately need. It's interesting to me that in verse 19, Paul says that God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is so interesting. God reconciling the world involved the coming and cross of Jesus. God's salvation plan was excruciating. It was costly. It required great effort from our Savior. How ironic that now God closes the deal with something as simple as a word. Just a word. He he could have used a giant lasso from heaven and just, just grabbed you and snugged you up and Yanked you to heaven. That's what he could have done. He could have used a cosmic shepherd's staff, you know, to reach down from heaven and grab you by the neck and just pull you right up into fellowship with him. Or a stun gun. Could have just dropped you and dragged you back. (laughs) Or human flypaper to catch you against your will. He could have done all those things. But no, God uses a word to close the deal. Just a simple word. An invite. That's what he uses now. God restores us to friendly relations by speaking to us a simple word. It can come from a preacher or from a friend or from a random person. But God arrests us with a bit of a word, with some good news, with the truth about Jesus. We wrestle with that word in our hearts, but we can't escape it. It starts to make sense to us. It rings true. Finally, we have to act on that word. We open up our hearts and give our lives to Jesus. And this is what makes your ministry, friend, so crucial. For God has committed to you the word of reconciliation. We have all been called to share the gospel with the people around us. This is why you can't just sit back in your little Christian biosphere insulated from the needs around you, sealed off from other people's pain, and not speak up. God loves the lizard-like folks in your world. You could say God has literally been dying to save them, and now He is in you pleading for them to be saved. Are you giving Him a voice? God has given you and me the ministry of reconciliation, of kissing lizards. How many lizards have you kissed lately?